This is like an incredibly safe drug, and yet you couldn't find a doctor who was willing even to give it a try, even after a 100% success rate versus an 8.3% hospitalization rate if you didn't take the drug. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm your host this evening and the creative director of the FLCCC Alliance. We're here once a week for 45 minutes to an hour. We tell you what's happening in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 that really works. In just a moment, Dr. Corey will be here with a very special guest, Steve Kirsch. You may have seen him on 60 Minutes. He has been the force behind another repurposed drug, fluvoxamine, that our doctors recently added to our treatment protocols for COVID. They will talk about that and how the science around these inexpensive repurposed drugs is being distorted and dismissed by interests that would be negatively impacted by their widespread adoption. And they're gonna get into it. And then they're gonna take your questions, as many as we can possibly get in. But first, you know, I have to give you this important disclaimer. Please remember, this is not medical advice, personal medical advice for you. We don't know what's going on inside your body, what other drugs you're taking, what you've ever been diagnosed with. So take the information that we give you tonight and share it with your personal physician to find out what is the best for you. And it's also my job to tell you, and it's important, who we are. The FLCCC Alliance is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We are offering education and information. That's what we sell, only we're giving it away. We are not selling drugs. We're not manufacturing them. We have no financial interest in ivermectin or fluvoxamine or any of the protocol, any of the protocols, anything that's in those protocols, the vitamins, the zinc, what have you. We don't, we're not into that. We are just, we came together simply to try to save lives in a once in a century pandemic. It was that simple. And we thought, we thought it'd be all over by now. We thought we would have no problem with our protocols and getting them out there and having the world use them. It hasn't been that easy. As you know, uh, we're still at it because the information has been blocked. And so we work and we work hard and we live on donations that many of you have given us. We thank you. We thank you greatly for those of you who have been so kind as to donate. You're great. And now let's just go right to Dr. Corey. Are you ready? I Take it away. So. Uh, before we get to talk with uh, Steve Kirsch, uh, which I'm looking forward to, I did want to just uh, give an update of where we are in the world with, with uh, treatment and ivermectin, largely ivermectin, but uh, we have the most data on that. Um, remember, some weeks or a month ago, I stopped trying to talk about the data on ivermectin because um, I'll probably blow my head off. I mean, the, the data is overwhelming. It doesn't really need to be discussed. Um, it's 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 uh, overwhelmingly proven effective um, in treatment of COVID, not only prevention, but treatment. Numerous reviews around the world have come to the same conclusion, right? Our colleagues in, in uh, Britain 
Spain, Italy, Japan, uh, and even the Unitaid uh, team uh, had a little bit of a, uh, um, I should say that's a little bit of a compromised document, but they did find uh, a highly effective impacts. Um, and I'm going to call attention to review paper number seven, which appeared in the past week. This was posted on a preprint server. This one, the corresponding author from the August Mayo Clinic. Right, so a whole bunch of people from around the country, about eight authors here, um, and here they reviewed correctly 38 different studies, 15,000 patients, right? And what did they find in the mortality meta-analysis? The odds of death were lower compared to non-ivermectin. Uh, a huge uh, mortality reduction, and even in subgroup analysis with severity, they found even higher impacts on mortality. So on and on and on, the data just keeps marching and uh, and we still have to struggle to try to convince the world. Um, and then I like to toot our horn here. Um, our paper is just every week, it's getting more and more popular. This is using a, uh, a sort of attention score that was developed about 10 years ago. And uh, we are skyrocketing on this scale. So our paper is now number 145 out of the 17.7 million scientific papers ever tracked uh, using this score. And, uh, and since uh, publication of the 227,000, we're number eight. So getting a lot of attention, which is good because uh, the paper is good and has really uh, hopefully, not hopefully, we know it's life-saving. Um, let's go real quick to where we are because I got to tell you, we are spending a lot of attention on Mexico and India. It is our belief as an organization that the data from those two countries are going to be what might actually convince more and more of the world. Um, although every time I think something's going to happen, it doesn't happen. Um, this was a cool tweet from a few weeks ago. Uh, someone else is noticing what's going on in Mexico. I've already presented this data in prior webinars, but um, listen, the shaded area is right after they developed a nationwide test and treat. You test positive, boom, you get ivermectin. This is what happened. This is what happened. Deaths and hospitalizations. Excess deaths became almost normal in the population of Mexico. So they're just not seeing anything causing excess deaths compared to prior years. And the hospitals were emptying, all green, about 25% occupancy when they started at like 100 in December. So um, the problem was, and I alluded to this last week, is that almost exactly no one was talking about it. You didn't hear any mentions of it in the press. What there was in the press was there were a little bit of arguments between the federal health ministry and the state health ministry there. And it was really, again, very, very worrisome that there was no attention. But then this paper got posted by some of the governmental health officials that were like the geniuses behind this program. And they studied it. They did a very careful study and they showed that the range of decrease in hospitalization, they basically showed how they emptied the hospitals, which is that this program with early treatment kits for anyone who tested positive, anywhere from 52 to 76% reduction, depending on the models used. And after that got posted, finally, you started to see it in the press. So a few papers in Mexico, Agencia FA, they had a, a, an article showing, uh, you know, talking about this paper and really kind of championing this unbelievable and I think historic uh, uh, public health initiative. Um, this was from a blog. They talked about the data here showing how many packs were distributed. And then this is a very well-regarded news magazine called Proceso. They'd already done an article a couple of months ago uh, with me and Juan Chimie, and they did a brief one. 
But here's the thing. I talked with the journalist who did the prior article, and she told me this week that right now in Mexico, the rest of the press and media is not picking up on this story, and it's considered to be a political gambit that because it's election season, they actually don't believe this study and they actually think that this is all political and they're just trying to get reelected by championing what they did with ivermectin. And so uh, again, it, it's, it's really demoralizing when you see, uh, again, science being distorted and dismissed for crazy reasons. So then now my hope goes to India. Please, everyone, please, world, pay attention to India. Please look at India, right? So we already talked last week that some uh, big forces in India finally, because it was so bad there, they finally said, you know what, we got to recommend ivermectin. I think the, the pressures were just too immense. And, and this paper, which is really great, is done. It was a letter to the editor of a, of a well-regarded uh, local uh, celebrated uh, publication in California. Um, he did a really cool letter to the editor where he outlined what happened in India in the past few weeks. And so if you look at the places where ivermectin was used widely, so like in Delhi, the cases peaked at 28,000 on April 20th. Now they're down almost 80%. The, the most crazy and most boldest move was the state of Goa. The chief minister, who is a physician, he read our paper and the bird recommendations. He was heavily influenced by our data and what we presented, and he called for a preemptive ivermectin for all adults in the state. Anyone 18 or over, he said, take five days of ivermectin. And within five days, they, they, the, the cases were down by a third. Those are cases. Right, so basically showing that with mass ivermectin you can reduce the cases, and then uh, Uttar Pradesh, which has always been the leader, they do a number of things: early identification, early testing. Now they're doing prophylaxis, and they got overwhelmed because of all the migrations from Maharashtra, uh, all the migrant laborers who are fleeing the epicenter, brought it to the UP, but the UP has now gotten it under control. Now contrast that with the state of Tamil Nadu. New leader was installed. And if you guys remember the story of Peru, right? Peru did unbelievably in controlling COVID with ivermectin until the new president came in. He didn't like ivermectin. He removed it. And there was about a 13-fold increase in death rate in Peru. So one of the, the world leaders that we should be celebrating, which is Peru, now is a disaster. Okay, now let's look at the state of Tamil Nadu. I am not making this up. The leader is called M.K. Stalin. Again, I repeat, the leader is called M.K. Stalin. So Stalin decided to forbid ivermectin throughout the state, and he ordered up a whole bunch of remdesivir. I don't know who's advising Stalin, but uh, Jesus, he needs better advice. And there's actually, again, nothing funny about this. But if you look at Tamil Nadu, they're going off the charts. And if you look at this, it's not subtle. Like everything else with ivermectin, it's not subtle. So if you look at Goa, right, right after they adopt it, it was during this massive overwhelming rise, they peak starting to come down, cases starting to come down. Same thing in Uttar Pradesh, which got overwhelmed with an influx of laborers uh, from the epicenter, and then as well as Delhi. Look at this. The cases are skyrocketing down. Does anyone see a difference between the one state that's removed ivermectin from the treatment and not doing any prophylaxis? They are on this meteoric rise. Again, humanitarian crisis continues. Um, and I'm just going to finish again by just saying, guys, we're working really hard. We have some new initiatives. Remember, although we're a group of scientists and physicians, 
we've somehow landed ourselves into some sort of grassroots advocacy uh, organization, and we're trying to do that as best we can using our credibility, um, but we need your support. So please think of us. Um, we're trying to, that video that opened up by uh, Dr. Martin Gill, who's one of our colleagues that we've learned a lot from and we've worked with, that kind of public service announcement, we think, um, we think can really maybe do some damage and we're, we're thinking of pursuing that. And that's actually something I talked about with Steve Kirsch uh, in the past. So let's go over to Steve. I'm gonna stop uh, sharing and uh, I wanna introduce Steve. Steve, why don't you come on and show your pretty face. Um, so Steve, nice to have you. Um, you know, uh, I'm just gonna say briefly, you and I got to know each other. I don't even know how we got to know each other. We just started talking because you know, our missions and our identification of, of a major, really humanitarian problem, I think was similar. Uh, we came about it different ways and we come from different backgrounds. But once I saw what you were doing, I just had to see the name of your organization. And I was like, that's an organization that I wanna be a part of. Um, and then you and I have just started talking. I think we've fought alongside each other. We're just advocating for optimal, best and early treatment. Um, very simple principle in medicine, the earlier you treat, the more effective your treatment is. And I think that's something you realized. And so, um, Steve, say hello. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's great to, to be here. Uh, Pierre and I, you know, both share this passion for uh, saving lives. And uh, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Uh, I'm based in Silicon Valley. And when the pandemic hit, I was kind of looking for what I could do to make a difference. And I've been a medical philanthropist for the past 20 years. And so I started reaching out to uh, infectious disease uh, professors that I knew and I asked them, hey, you know, where's the market opportunity? You know, because entrepreneurs are always looking for market opportunities. Like, how can I make a difference as a Silicon Valley guy who doesn't know anything of, you know, not an expert on, on viruses and infectious diseases. And they said that, um, Repurposed drugs and, and uh, outpatient treatments are the fastest and the cheapest way to end the pandemic. And uh, what I found was that the top researchers were not getting funded uh, for their research studies. So people like Bert Vogelstein, he's the most uh, cited scientist of all time in any field. He couldn't get funding for his study on doxazosin. Uh, there is uh, Camistat. Uh, I have... Um, I put together, I, I, I started this, uh, um, I put a million dollars of my own money into uh, starting the COVID early treatment fund. And I recruited uh, a scientific advisory board about 13 uh, top scientists. And you know, we, um, uh, our, our goal is to uh, try to fund these, uh, identify the most promising drugs and fund them. One of them was yeah. Camistat. Uh, and there were no Camistat trials funded by anyone anywhere in the world. And so we were pouring billions of dollars into the vaccine, but we were pouring nothing into existing safe repurposed drugs to, to treat the virus. So I thought, there, look, there's an opportunity there. It's probably $20 million expenditure. Steve, and we'll know what, timeline, what timeline is this? Like, how early did you April, recognize that there was like a complete void? End of March. Basically, I'm shut down. I'm, I'm, you know, my business is like, you have to go home and work from home. And I'm like, I'm 65. I have multiple risk factors. And I was worried that, man, if this virus hit me, I'm, I'm, my chances of, of uh, 
dying are pretty high. And so not only did I have a humanitarian interest in just doing as a good citizen what you should do, but I had a vested self-interest in, you know, it's called self-preservation to try to find out, you know, see if we can rapidly identify what, what drugs work. And so this was like, put the money in, recruit the scientific advisory board, uh, put out the shingle saying that you're, um, you have money, you, uh, you want uh, grant proposals. And we got a bunch of grant proposals coming in and we funded a whole bunch of them. And, you know, the first one that uh, reported results reported 100% success in treating uh, COVID. So, uh, and that was, uh, that was reported back in uh, August of, right. of this year. And which drug was that, Steve? That was a drug called fluvoxamine. You may have heard of it, uh, Pierre. I've heard of that. Now, that was the first one that came in. And, uh, and what happened in the larger healthcare system and, and that was a result reported in, I think it was in a journal. What journal was that again? It's um, a, it's a, yeah, it's a four letter word up here. Oh, or, it is a four letter word. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it starts with a J. Uh, so it's, it's JAMA, the, um, uh, the journal of the American Medical Association. And yeah, I've so heard they, of it. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're, uh, they're well known and, you know, they published it. It took them several months to publish it. Uh, the results of that uh, phase two study. Uh, but it was good because they get 10,000 submissions, and this was one of the few uh, that they published because they said it was, this is a high quality study. It was done right. It was done by high quality researchers. Uh, the result was 100% uh, protection against hospitalization. And then they concluded that you should not, this is just a hypothesis. You shouldn't use this at home. Please, doctors, do not use until it's proven in a a phase three clinical trial, because we wouldn't want to harm anyone on a drug, which is maybe not as safe as ivermectin. There have been two deaths over the past 37 years from overdose that I found. I think ivermectin, um, I'm, I wasn't able to find a single death in like 40 years. But I've also heard that there may have been like a dozen I don't, there may have, but when you're talking about four billion recorded doses, I'm not sure what even a dozen deaths means. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this is like an incredibly safe drug, and yet you couldn't find a doctor who was willing even to give it a try, even after a hundred percent success rate versus an eight point three percent hospitalization rate if you didn't take the drug. Yeah. And, you know, that's just the trial, Stephen. Like what I really that's the like- the first about trial. The, yeah, no, and no, but what I like about the fluvoxamine story, and maybe I'm, I hope I get the order right, but one of the reasons why fluvoxamine was pursued, I mean, obviously some of the mechanisms of action appeared favorable, but, you know, as a clinician, you know, yes, I like my trials. I like my randomized controlled trials. However, when I go to work, I don't have RCTs for half, three quarters of the stuff that I do. You know, it's observation, it's anecdote, it's reasoning. And my favorite is the outbreaks of COVID in psychiatric hospitals, where some astute observer, a clinician, you know, noticed who got sick in the psychiatric hospitals. Was it the patients or was it the providers? It was the doctors. Yeah. And it was a factor of three. Yeah. And so they, then someone said, I wonder why that is. I wonder why the patients aren't getting sick. 
and the doctors, it's, you know, I mean, it's just, it's simple observation and deduction, right? And so you had really supportive evidence that oh. there was a medicine, there's probably some difference, and it certainly wasn't comorbidities because clearly psychiatric patients have way more comorbidities than the, doc and the doctors and nurses, right? Um, and so when they carefully looked at it, right, they were able to see that it was this class of medicines. Yes, and in fact, there's a great, there's a German study. Uh, I have a website, by the way, skirsch.io, and it has a presentation that goes through all the studies and stuff. Um, but there was a, a study done out of Germany, and they looked at all the comorbidities. And the, all, there was only one comorbidity that was actually helpful. It was protective against the virus. And it was statistically significant. The comorbidity was depression. Right. So if you were depressed, you had a very impressive uh, benefit if you're depressed. And the reason is not because you were depressed, it's because you're on an SSRI or you're on an antidepressant drug. And drugs in that category are very similar in that they reduce uh, inflammation and fluvoxamine is the one that uh, has the greatest activation of sigma one. And that's why they chose it for, uh, for this trial is because it, it activates the sigma, the sigma one receptor that uh, Francis Collins has talked about. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of the same almost identification and study that prompted a lot of the anti-androgen stuff because there was some early trials showing that men on anti-androgen, the five alpha reductase also seem to be peculiarly well protected from getting yeah, COVID. Yeah, Tempris yeah, uh, yeah. 2 yeah. inhibition there. And that's what Canistat is, yes, uh, Tempris exactly. 2 inhibitor. So yeah, so those just were not a lot of lot, not a lot of folks here are on Camistat, but they first you know they noticed it on you know on uh, what is it Dutasteride, Avodard, and Flomax and whatnot, and so they saw those drugs were uh, and they they worked the same yeah. way. So, so there were lots of yeah. clues. Yeah, right. And exactly. there's a study by Nicholas Hortel, which was published in Nature, um, that people can look up, and he looked at all the SSRIs in France, and he found that they actually. Um, the protection um, varied based on the Sigma-1 uh, uh, affinity. And so the more you activated Sigma-1, the greater the protection, and they all aligned. But the neat thing is that Nicholas had no clue about Sigma-1 at the time. He just wrote the paper, and he was just ranking uh, all these SSRIs. And so how is it that he just happened to get lucky and they all ordered based on the Sigma-1 active. Where, where have I heard that getting lucky phrase before? Yeah. Um, somewhere. Anyway, there's a yeah. lot. There's a, we're, you know, fluoxamine and ivermectin, you know, Pierre, I've been told by medical experts that the drugs don't work. It's just that we just got lucky yeah. on yeah. all these things. So we're, we're probably the two luckiest guys yeah. um, on the planet because- you know, when, when we pick a drug, it, it just kind of works everywhere. And when people take it away, you know, the rates go up. And when people uh, uh, reinstate it, the rates go down. It's kind of like every yeah. time. And when people name Stalin, tell you not to use it, everybody goes and dies. So just pointing that out again. So yeah. um, now, I mean, listen, you and I get it. And, and, and we also, you know, not only are we have we struggled with just trying to advocate for good medicine? 
uh, good available repurposed off patent uh, medicine, not only for the US population, but even worldwide in low income, low resource uh, places that are getting decimated. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm, yeah, you know, believe me, I'm focused on, on India. Uh, oh, right yeah. Now. It's a, it's a disaster. Mean, and, you know, the sad thing is that these drugs have been sitting on the shelf for the entire time. And they've been yelling out to us saying, use me, use me, use me. And, you know, we just got into the tip of the iceberg here in terms of the evidence that was existing um, that showed that fluvoxamine works. So, you know, in 2019, it was shown to uh, reduce inflammation and sepsis. And so that's what prompted uh, WashU to do their study. But then you had these other studies that independently discovered the same thing. So then when JAMA trial came out, that sort of confirmed it. Yeah. And then this guy, David Seftel, um, he's a researcher, uh, NIH researcher, um, a funded researcher. And he was, he's also a track physician in Coltingate Fields. And they had an outbreak on the same day that the JAMA paper came out. And I happened to be on a webinar with Seftel saying, hey, you know, this fluvoxamine, let me tell you about the JAMA paper and 100% protection. So he decided to offer it to the people at the racetrack that were sick. And he basically said, hey, do you want the drug or do you, do you not want the drug? So the people who felt super healthy said, I don't need a psych drug. And the people who were like getting symptoms and worried like, eh, it's gonna yeah, happen yeah, yeah. to me, I'm gonna take the drug. So the sick people went for the drug and the well people, the healthy people went for no drug. Guess what? 20, you know, 12.5% hospitalization and death rate in the people who went for no drug and 0% hospitalization and death rate for the sick people who went for the drug. And there were even eight crossovers who failed on the um, no treatment and they switched over to the treatment group and they got cured too. They didn't, none of them ended up with long haul COVID versus 60% in the group that uh, said, we don't need the fluvoxamine. Now the p-value of that is 10 to the minus 14. Right. So it has a p-value that's 10 orders of magnitude greater. When you combine the results from the two studies. Yeah, well, no, that's just in one study. You know, and the thing is that nobody can explain this. I offered a million dollars to anybody it's who a could- It's fluke, Steve. It's, you got lucky and it's a fluke. Literally, that, no. that is the kind of responses that you get. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, after I offered the million dollars, I said to anybody who could explain a confounder, or a bias that could explain this result, could explain the facts, you get a million dollars. And the only guy who even attempted said, look, I'm totally convinced that fluvoxamine worked, but I was wondering if I could come up with an argument uh, that could win the million dollars. And he failed, but nobody else has even attempted uh, to do that because they realize that it's futile because people can't even come up with a theory as to how that even could have happened if the drug didn't work. Listen, Steve, I've talked to you so many times over these many months and, uh, and I've heard you speak. I think if people didn't hear your introduction uh, and they heard how you assessed and thought about the evidence and the medicine, they could easily confuse you for a doctor until you start offering people a million dollars to debate you. <laughs> That's when it's pretty clear you're not a doctor. Yeah, no, you know, I, I like I, it. Yeah, I did that to, to, to prove yeah. that, look, if there was a confounder, then you should identify it um, or you should 
take my position because it's consistent. My position is consistent with all the observations. So, so this is what I want to hear from you because I was like, you know, my take on fluvoxamine was I was impressed with the results, but like I immediately was unimpressed with the results because I've been so indoctrinated in medicine, which is in medicine, nothing happens unless you get enough of like a patient number. Never mind your p value, never mind that. They want to see X thousands of patients studied, you know, not a couple of hundred, not a few. And so I, I just knew that the, the, the hill that fluvoxamine had to climb to be seriously considered what was, was really steep. Now, you somehow, and I didn't understand this part, you got some key opinion leaders in a group and you got the NIH to listen and you somehow got fluvoxamine into the conversation based on a relatively, by traditional standards, small amount of trials. Well, look, we don't have a, an approved treatment for COVID. Right. And Jeffrey Klausner, I had, uh, I, I had a discussion with Jeffrey Klausner and he's like super skeptical. And I said, hey, here's the evidence, blah, blah, blah. Here's more evidence. Here's more evidence. He said, oh, maybe there's something to this. Good for him. And so then he said, look, let me, let me convene a panel of my friends. And his friends are top experts from the CDC, from NIH, and from top academic centers and journals. Uh, you know, so journal editors. Yeah. Um, and so there are 30 experts, right, from all the, you know, we're talking CDC and NIH and talk at, at top uh, academic institutions. And he brought them all together. And the thing that they had that the NIH um, uh, panel never had is they had interaction with the scientists who actually did the studies. So they could ask Angela, so, you know, tell me about the mechanism of action right. and, you know, uh, David Seftel, hey, you know, was there any bias here? And both, so they could ask questions. And at the end of the hour, they had a vote and they voted more than two to one in favor of uh, that physicians should talk to their patients on a shared decision-making basis about fluvoxamine. So the expert panel was convinced, but the, 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 the transcript of that meeting was submitted to a journal months and months ago, and it's still not published. And so from a scientific- What, what journal, Steve? View, it doesn't exist. What, what, what journal was that submitted to that it's not I, getting published? I don't, it wasn't JAMA, <laughs> uh, but I don't remember that the, 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 the probably name- Probably some other four letter journal, don't worry. Yeah, um, so- um, so yeah, so that paper is just sitting there. It's not getting published for some reason. It's a, it, it's just saying what happened at the meeting. The, at the meeting, they said it should be added to the NIH guidelines. You know, was the conclusion, and it's not been published for, you know, and this is an expert panel uh, review that's not been published. So uh, um, I want to make sure we don't run out of time here because I yeah. want to let people know about this takedown article on, yeah, on evidence-based. So I wrote an article on trial site news and everybody should go over there. Share, can you share your screen if you have it up? I'm Steve? sure. Yeah. So let me uh, hit the share screen here and uh, Steve Kirsch on Twitter. Okay. So this is my, um, everybody can uh, see this hopefully. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so this is um, if you if you go to uh, my Twitter feed. So I'm uh, at st Kirsch on Twitter, and you look at my last uh, my most recent tweet, and it's a link to uh, to this article, and it's a it's a 
great article. I've gotten just tons and tons. I've got a thousand likes on trial site, which is uh, very unusual. And um, if everybody on this call were just to go over there, there, I mean, there are over 1100 people on this call. If you guys just go over there and just hit the like button, that will help. But more importantly, is just to take a look at this and then retweet this or send this off on Facebook or LinkedIn. And uh, let's get a, a movement here going and let's ramp this thing up because this article, when people read it, um, you know, there is a review of this article on, uh, you know, for those of you who are on peak prosperity, it says new article on ivermectin, fluvoxamine blows NIH and WHO out of the water. It blows the WHO's opposition to these drugs out of the water, total annihilation job, surgical and hatchet, delicious. Here's one quote, read the rest for yourself. We have 20, uh, 29 to zero win-loss record in uh, hydroxychloroquine and 20 uh, zero in um, frivermectin for early treatment. And the WHO tells doctors, do not use it. Really? And Steve, let me just put in my, I, I thought it was a great article. I mean, uh, you would share with me before, and I mean, I had very little uh, to, to add. I thought it was just a, a terrific and very, very powerfully written article. Um, and uh, I welcome you to the club of those who are banging their heads against the wall against this edifice that they call evidence-based medicine. Um, and, and again, like we've talked about, it's the problem's not with evidence-based medicine. The concept and principles and foundation of evidence-based medicine is actually, I think, an overwhelming positive to the practice of medicine. Yeah, but modern evidence medicine has gone over the top that, in that's terms the problem. of it's evolved. We will only do things if we have phase three clinical trials that are large right. numbers. Hold on. Steve, I'm talking about from its inception and some of those principles, we've moved far, far away from them uh, into this really perverted sense. And it's true. It's this fascination obsession with these large randomized controlled trials, which are no more true than any other trials. Everyone thinks that there are some cut above. They have as much probability of being flawed as anything else. Correct. And yeah. I ignore, I ignore as many randomized controlled trials as I pay attention to. And it's not just bias, it's understanding of the science. Like I know when a trial just didn't measure something correctly and didn't really have a good design that was serving to study yeah. the medicine in so question. Let me talk about the, uh, the fluvoxamine trial because it was just stopped and it was stopped today. And so it's news and I'm getting like people saying, well, why was it stopped? And I know why it was stopped, but I'm not allowed to tell anybody. But well, I, 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 for well, the same I'll reason why the JAMA trial should have been stopped. Huh? I'm going to guess it's probably the same reason why the JAMA trial and ivermectin should have been stopped, and it wasn't. Yeah. So no. no well, well, I can. I, I. Well, I can't tell you why it was stopped. I will just express my point of view. Fine. Okay. And my point of view is this: this disease is all about early treatment. And early treatment means you don't, when you get the virus and you think you have the virus, and if you get tested immediately or because you have symptoms or you just get tested and you don't even have symptoms, you treat the thing immediately. Yes. Every day that you wait, yeah. your chances go down and down and down and down. And so it almost doesn't matter. Like there are a lot of drugs that you can, you know, there's fluvoxamine, there's ivermectin and so forth. But the thing that people aren't realizing 
is the most important thing is the time from when you realize you're infected to the time that you get treatment because the drivers virus is doubling every nine hours no question in, in your body and so every day is precious and if so for fluvoxamine so here's the hint guys here's the hint okay for 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 drugs you can have a hundred percent success rate if you give it early now in like david seftel's case he was testing people proactively and so he found people even before they knew they were infected or they, the, because they didn't have symptoms, but he detected it early and he got a hundred percent success rate in those people. And for the people he got too late, he was still early enough that he got them within the first 24 to 48 hours, hundred yep. percent success rate. Once you give fluvoxamine with a hundred percent success rate and you give it to people five days out, it's a whole different story. It's like having one little room on the World Trade Center on fire versus the entire World Trade Center is now on fire. So and you're expecting so the thing Steve, to be. You get one of the foundational principles of disease and really acute disease, right? Chronic illnesses, hours and days, it's not on those scales. Um, like in cancer, it's really never about hours or days. Now, let me just give you, uh, I don't think this will blow your mind, but remember, I'm an intensivist, so I'm an, an expert at ICU medicine. We have any number of therapies which you can measure by the hour. Every hour delay in the Sepsis. disease model like septic shock, you see the mortality climb. Yes. And so, you know, outpatient acute illness that has the potential of deteriorating to the hospital and dying, yes, every day matters. And so that's why, remind me the name of your organization, Steve? It's the uh, COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. Early Treatment Fund. So you figured that out quite a long time ago. And so- oh, it's obvious. Yeah. There's never been a virus, never. There has, never has there been a virus where you actually have better results by waiting until you have symptoms before treating. And yet every single doctor will say, I'm not gonna treat you until you have symptoms. And if you're a child, I'm not gonna treat you unless you have really bad symptoms because most kids get over it. And every single time, this is a mistake. Because I, like I, I was talking to a physician, she said, I'm, oh, 17 year old, not gonna treat her. So the, the, the girl ended up with Tourette's syndrome um, and it was caused by the virus. One and a half, a baby, one, 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 one and a half years old died because they didn't treat the baby. You know, and the drugs, drugs don't kill people. We've been, no, I mean, very, not the drugs that we're talking about. <laughs> some yeah. can, so some anyway, do have a toxicity, but, safety, you know, uh, yeah. a benefit. No, but, risk but, you know, look, but, but, but I just want to finish this because this is important, right? Because the fluvoxamine trial will report out and it turns out that it in the original trial it was four days when you got to you to when you got the medication. In this trial, it's five days, and you may not think that one day makes much of a difference, but oh, come on, one day it's not doubled from before. It's you know many times larger than it was before, and so every single day it's like you know this huge magnification, um, and so. You could, you could look at this and say, oh, fluvoxamine didn't work. It only had a 40% reduction. 
Yeah, but if you had given it early and they did, if they did the analysis of the people who got the drug really early, they would have seen 100% success. And, and then the other, my other favorite thing about, and I'll finish this and we'll go to questions because I think we touched on a bunch of stuff. Um, but I just want to, I'm going to share my screen again and I'm going to go back to this slide. Um, is this a slide about our paper? Uh, I'm actually, no, I'm trying to show, uh, let me share something else. I want to stop and I'm going to share a different, um, uh, let's see, where am I? Sorry about this. I'm screwing up. I'm going to share uh, Google Chrome. Can you guys see this? Yep. Uh, this is the altmetric score. Yep. So I want to point out this score that we have, which we're, we're at number 145 out of 17.7 million papers. I was really interested to see what was the number one paper and the number two paper. The number one paper was a really complex thing about diversity and I didn't really understand it, but the number two paper was actually about the p-value, Steve. And I invite you to go to Altmetric, look up that paper. It's about the p-value. The reason why I bring that up is because a group of scientists wrote a paper saying it's again, another tenet of modern evidence-based medicine, which is this obsession with this p-value, which is if you're not under the p-value, it doesn't work and it should be ignored. And, and, and these scientists wrote this phenomenal paper, so common sense, saying, no, the p-value is a probability. It's not a cutoff between whether something works or not. Because like you and I know, like you'll see a 40% reduction, but then the evidence-based maniacs, I call them EBM, evidence-based maniacs, they'll be like, ah, the p-value is 0.076. Doesn't work, Steve. And, you know, you see that all the time. Yeah, it just says, it just says that your study was underpowered. Right, right. And right. so- But p-values are useful, right? Because my p-value was, was 10 to the minus 14. Well, they're useful to you when it's convenient, apparently. So- well, Yeah, yeah. You know, and, 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 and you know, by, by the way, both the Ceftel trial and the other, um, the JAMA trial were both uh, like point under 0.01. Less than right. we had two trials under 0.01. And the FDA criticized the Ceftel trial. They said, we're not going to look at that. The, it was not blinded and exactly. it was not truly randomized. And I'm going, like, are you kidding me? Because the people who basically were healthy went into the no treatment group and the sick people chose the treatment group. Right. This is like, an incredible. Uh, you're making too much sense. No, and, and those, that kind of reasoning, they, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Very, like, you know, it's, it's very cut off black habit. and white, and it's very hard to argue. So, and that's the thing, like, I'm always using clinical rationale, reasoning, probability, risk benefit. And you find that very few are wanting to or willing to employ, and I wouldn't say they're mental gymnastics. They're just, you got to reason yourself around a problem and many are unwilling. So anyway. Yeah, you know, but, but they think this way. They think this, um, oh, we don't look at, phase two is just a prelude to phase three. And we only look at phase three and we ignore any of the anecdotes. I look at this as an engineering problem. Right. I look at this, how do I minimize the number of deaths yeah. Right. And what's the upside and the downside of each decision that, that I make? Um, and I also look at what fits the evidence. Right. So I got either the drug works, the drug doesn't work, or the drug is harmful. So there are three ways that the, there are three hypotheses. Which hypothesis fits the data the best? Well, it turns out that for hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and fluvoxamine, the hypothesis that the drug works exactly fits every single observation that we've ever seen. 
I agree. If you, you, you know, and the others don't. <laughs> so Listen, it's, whether you look I at say, from that point of view yeah. or you look, you know, and, and by the way, the, w, the, the World Health Organization a year ago was saying, don't wait for data. Don't wait for this. It's too late. Treat people now. Take the risk of being wrong. That was what the, the, the World Health Organization was saying a year ago, but it was about Ebola. But they're right. not walking the talk. You know, I was going to talk about that surgeon and, and his speech because I thought that was a powerful speech. It made so much sense. And they did exactly the opposite. So anyway, exactly hey, Betsy. Um, yeah, we got to go. We time, got questions. And I'm <laughs> sure you have a few. And, and so uh, fire yep. away. We do. And I've and I just got to say, you know, observation, you tell me when you're in a nursing home and you've got two floors of people who've had itchy scabies and they were treated with a drug and then COVID comes in and the staff all comes down with COVID, but none of the nursing home patients who had yeah. the scabies have no, it. it and we've, we, yeah, there's plenty of those kind of observations, but they, yeah. they just don't count. So, all right. Anyway. Yeah, you, got, you, better, you better stop the drug, you know, because it's yeah. not approved for COVID. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Somebody slips off the cliff. You know, World Health Organization says do not approved. use the COVID, got to stop the drug. <laughs> All right. Question number one is from Arthur W. For Pierre and Steve, what anti-inflammatory properties does fluvoxamine have that steroids do not? Is fluvoxamine antiviral like ivermectin is? So the answer to that is we don't know. Uh, there is a, there's something called fiasma. It, it's a functional inhibitor of, of some long spectral blah, 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 mumble mumble. Anyway, you can look it up. F I A Pierre, me, you may know it. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, anyway. I've heard of it. I'm not, it's again, not, not on my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, and so that's speculated as a, a potential antiviral uh, mechanism. We don't know for sure, but we do know that it reduces inflammation and reduces inflammation without affecting the body's immune response. So this is very important because steroids basically will calm your inflammation, but they in, impede your ability to fight the virus. So fluvoxamine is like this Goldilocks thing where it reduces the inflammation without affecting your ability to fight the virus. And so that's what makes yeah. it very, very special. And that's, that's and I, will t I think that's a very fair point, Steve, is that uh, steroids are so wide ranging in what they suppress and interfere with. Yeah. It's a very blunt sword. Please do not where, use steroids if you're anywhere close to, you know, yeah. the, for your first and, week. And we know from the data that um, the benefit risk ratio changes depending on the phase, right? So early disease, you do not want to use steroids because you, you want to really preserve uh, the innate and as well as adaptive immune system. Um, later on, when you're overwhelmed in inflammation, we know that steroids are absolutely key. Um, and so, yeah, it's really dependent on the phase. But like I said, steroids are much more of a blunt sword um, and, and fluvoxamine is much more targeted. Yeah. And also, by the way, fluvoxamine works in all phases of COVID. We've had uh, fluvoxamine. And by the way, if you can't get fluvoxamine, you can also use fluoxetine, which is Prozac, and it works just as well. Um, so in a lot of countries, they don't have fluvoxamine. They use uh, a fluoxetine or Prozac and they get the same results. So the equivalent dose, instead of 50 milligrams twice a day times 14 days, uh, which is the fluvoxamine dose, you use 30 milligrams of, of, of Prozac once a day uh, times 14 days. And so we've shown this works in, uh, they tested it in Mongolia 
um, they've tested it in uh, Croatia. And in Croatia, they had like uh, close to 100 patients and they got a 50% reduction uh, in mortality using it in the ICU. And so, you know, it, like I said, it works best when it's given early, it's got a hundred percent track record. You give it late, you have to give a lot of it. You give a uh, hundred milligrams three times a day and it takes longer, but still they were getting, they're using it. That's standard of care now where they tried it, you know, but getting a hospital to try anything new is like, yeah. it's, it's yeah. impossible. You know, one, I don't know if I've told you this, Steve, but uh, so Paul Marek, um, his hospital system has outlawed ivermectin. So Dr. Marek, who really was in our group, I mean, and in the world, really the first, like I would say the most credible scientist that identified the clinical data that really overwhelmingly supported ivermectin. In his hospital system, he can't use it. See, when he's on rounds in the ICU, he's not using ivermectin. He's yeah. using fluvoxamine. He's using, uh, you know, antiandrogens. You know, he's using everything else he can because he can't use. Uh, it's very, it's, it's very sad, and he's not alone. I and, mean, the American and, hospital system, like, I, like ciproheptadine, is amazing for yep, hospitalized. I've been using it. Yep. And it's, it's, it's like this little antihistamine that's, that's like super it's cheap. Al it's like an old allergy pill. It's yeah. It, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's like taking a Sudafed. Yeah. No, I get it. You, you, and, you know, what else you got, Betsy? Yeah, we got to get to a few more here. Okay. Right. From Nick Maynard, more and more people in my circle of friends are getting vaccine reactions, some of which are getting worse over time. I realize they are diverse in nature, but could it be that ivermectin can neutralize spike proteins that seem to be wreaking havoc in their bodies? So the answer question. is is unequivocally yes, based on rationale. And then uh, crazy enough, clinical experience. So we don't have trials data on this, but I got to tell you, let's review. And this questioner knows the answer. It's almost like they, they handed the answer in the question, but the vaccines teach the body to make spike proteins. And we know that these spike proteins, when people get bad reactions or have a lot of this terrible sequelae from the vaccines, it's spike protein mediated. We also know that spike proteins cause a lot of injury in COVID. Okay. We also know that ivermectin binds tightly to spike protein. So if you want to be so-called neutralize any pathology mediated by spike proteins, ivermectin would be an excellent choice. And I have already treated, oh, over a half dozen patients with a variety of pretty disabling and troubling post-vaccination uh, sequelae or symptoms. Every single one has gotten better within a day or two uh, from those symptoms. They've all been mitigated and improved. So uh, yeah, anyone who has an unfortunate uh, reaction to, to a vaccine, I would suggest a trial of ivermectin empirically. Yeah, and, and let me just add to that, that uh, the other, the, the, the corollary is uh, for long haulers. If you have long haul COVID, um, similarly ivermectin, uh, there are four drugs that Bruce Patterson has found uh, are effective um, for long haulers. Yep. Um, so ivermectin is one of them, fluvoxamine is one of them, uh, simvastatin or um, uh, atorvastatin is another one. And then the fourth one is um, Mirabar. It's um, uh, HIV drug. Yeah, Mirabovic or whatever it is, Mirabovic. Yeah. yeah. It's a HIV drug. So and we're going to be coming out with our uh, long haul protocol with, within, I think, about a week. We're still working on it, but uh, we, you know, Bruce Patterson work, uh, his work has large, uh, heavily influenced 
our protocol because we're working with Dr. Uh, Ram Yagendra, who's been working with him. Right. So. Yeah. And, and they've got a website, uh, Long Haulers. I think it's, yep. it's covidlonghaulers.com. And yep. these guys are just know what they're doing. They have blood tests that identify. We, long we send them patients. They've done a really good they're, job. They're the, the, they're the best patients. in uh, the world that I've seen. No I've question. Both of them. They're great. Question three from many people. They're asking the same question. How long should I remain on ivermectin prophylaxis? Well, um, so as, as long as there's a credible risk, as long as there's a significant risk of getting COVID in, in the community, which depending on the community, depending on the country, depending where you are, is still significant. Um, the thing that I would read, so here's the thing I have about that is, is people, I think a lot of people, especially people who are otherwise healthy, they don't like taking medicines. Okay, fine. None of us like taking medicine. We also don't like COVID. And we also don't like our whole entire globe cratered by a virus. So pick your poisons. But if you had a solution to protecting yourself, you'd be hard pressed to find a better one than ivermectin, given its safety profile, its cost and availability. That's one point I make. The second point I make is for those of you who are on medicines, whether it's a statin, an aspirin, a diabetes drug, people take blood pressure medicine, any number of medicines for decades, decades every day. So to take ivermectin once a week while we're going through this, again, I don't know what the future holds with this pandemic or endemic, um, but I think as long as the risk is, is high and you have your certain age or comorbidity, um, you should take it. Again, young people are otherwise healthy. Um, you, you could do, you know, a second alternative, and Steve kind of brought this up, and I'd like to remind him, because again, our theme, Steve's, Steve's organization actually has early treatment in the title, but our, you know, one of our founding principles is early treatment, but you can also do what I would call a just in hand strategy, which is you have the ivermectin in hand, you take it upon immediate first symptoms of feeling unwell. So like Steve was very nicely pointing out, like each day's delay, your outcomes are worse. It's my belief that if you had a, a good effective early treatment drug on hand and you took it upon first symptoms, you wouldn't have to worry about severe yeah, symptoms, but, missing a lot of work, or death, or dying, or hospital. Yeah, totally, totally agree. You know, and if and if, if and if you end up and you test COVID negative, uh, and you know you feel your symptoms are going away, no harm, no drug. foul. Yeah, no, no harm. Right. And so, I mean, I have flu. I have a supply of fluvoxamine and ivermectin on hand, and I'm vaccinated. I'm double vaccinated, but you can still get the the uh, COVID and die, even though you've been vaccinated. So, you know, don't think that just because you're vaccinated, uh, you're immune because you're not. And, and uh, I just wanted to say that somebody asked a question, do long haulers actually have COVID? The answer is sort of not, not detectable via PCR, but they actually do have the, the COVID virus there that's wreaking havoc. It's just not PCR detectable. Another question. This is from Catalan Florencema. With regard to the JAMA study, uh, what are the chances that the studies have been tempered with? How well do you know and trust the people who oversaw those studies? And how credible are they considering the conflict of interest that was reported? Well, I, 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 I want to be clear. We don't have evidence that there was, um, there's no direct evidence that there was malfeasance or corruption. However, the conflicts of interest are astounding. Um, and, and let me just give you my real opinion on that trial. I actually don't think it was a corrupt trial. I think it was a failed trial. And there's a big difference in that. 
I actually think they did try to credibly study it. This was their problem, and it's right in the paper if you read the paper. This is the most uh, important thing to understand about that trial. When they designed it, they designed it for a certain size that anticipated about 80 people of the 400 or of, of those that were sick to deteriorate. They needed 80 people to deteriorate in order to measure a difference between groups. Exactly 12 people deteriorated out of the 400. And so when you want to test a drug between another and look at its impact on deterioration and you have 12 people out of 400 who deteriorated, you have no trial. And it was a failed trial. It wasn't a negative trial. In fact, when you look at the evidence, the ivermectin group actually got better faster, but yet they came up with ridiculous, uh, what I think was biased, what I think actually was corrupt, let's call it intellectually corrupt, is that, um, and here I'm gonna go out on a limb. I think that JAMA and these ivory tower types and these editors, are either willfully, financially, or just intellectually corrupt and biased against ivermectin, that they allowed or either asked the trialist to write in their conclusion, this suggests that ivermectin is not useful in COVID. That is not the conclusion that should have been taken from that trial. Not Correct. at all. Yeah, absolutely. That's what they, what, that's yeah, I mean, the thing like, that I think is really unacceptable. Yeah, and they changed the endpoint. You always have to look at what the endpoint here is, and you have to look at what the studies actually show. And a lot of times, ivermectin, like if you look at the 20 ivermectin studies, and you actually look at the data, and the best place to do this is C19 early and you click over an ivermectin, you look at all the studies, and you look at each study page, you'll see it's all green. All of the metrics always show ivermectin beating the competition. You know, it's mm -hmm. like having Michael Jordan on your basketball team. If you did a, a, a randomized trial, right, put Jordan on this team, that team will win. You put Jordan on the next team, that team will win by, you know, five points. And, and, and none of them are statistically significant. But the point is that every time you put Michael Jordan on a team, all the stats are always better. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, yeah. So anyway, the, the JAMA trial, yeah, it's just, it was a failed trial. I don't necessarily think it was corrupt. I think yeah, it was but, just But it's still, it's still in every single metric that they measured in that trial, ivermectin beat the competition. And you'll see ah. that in every single one of the, the, the 20 Now trials. you're coming back to my favorite topic, the p-value, Steve. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But the p-value wasn't significant. But the point is that, it's like it's like a basketball team which wins each game by two points. Ah, not right. statistically significant. Right. Oh, they won the next game by. But seven. they're if, but they're undefeated the whole season. Yeah, they're undefeated still the whole not season. Significant. And, you yeah. know. Oh, we can. But Pierre, we can't. Those weren't against the same team, and so we can't compare them. So you can't add up, and you can't do that analysis. That's what the scientists tell you. There's no question. All right, Betsy, what okay. else you got? We're, last, we got, we got more, common sense. That's it. Then we're, you know, we're running over here. Rhonda Nesbitt wanted to know um, when we're going to have the FLCCC treatment protocol for the long haulers. You talked about soon. it. Soon. You know, it, it, the, the people, um, it's going to be soon. We're working on it. Uh, I, I do want to have, I, I do have to say something about that protocol is that um, as opposed to almost everything else that we recommend, you know, that protocol is not based on trials. There's no trials evidence. In fact, that's one of the most laughably sad, another laughably sad failure of our healthcare system. If you look at the 
massive amount of trials on long haul COVID that are currently funded in this country, almost exactly none are for treatment. They're all describing the disease. So you have all these academic medical centers who are saying, oh, people feel dizzy, they're tired, they have sometimes have fevers, their knees ache. It's insane. Now, before I go off too much on that tangent, so we don't really have a lot of trials evidence, but we do have increasing amounts of really highly expert clinical expertise, good clinical rationale. Um, you know, we have uh, Patterson and Yogendra's group. They've treated, you know, I don't know, many hundreds, if not thousands. Uh, those those guys are the pros. Everybody yeah. else is like- But they haven't published it in JAMA yet, Steve. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, so- Pierre. <laughs> but look, so, those, guys, so- those guys know what they're doing. Uh, right. The and, rest and- of them are like, uh, right. you know, it's almost worthless. But but the other thing is, you know, the 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 pathophysiology of COVID is quite complex. There's a few different manifestations. There's a few different drugs that are uh, effective in what we think are different clinical phenotypes. So how you present and your constellation of symptoms, and we're we're kind of ironing that out. Um, I will tell you that whatever we put out will evolve with data. That's what we do. We follow the data. We follow the science. But. Um, uh, like I said, we're, we're working on it and, and, uh, hopefully within about a week, we'll have it out. Okay. And now this is the last question from Laura, please address whether people who go on fluvoxamine for 10 to 14 days should taper slowly after that dose, or can they just stop the drugs wondering because of withdrawal symptoms? Yeah. So the, the answer to that is no, you can stop cold Turkey. The, 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 uh, in the original JAMA study, uh, the dose was pretty high. And David Seftel, when he used that dose, he got side effects for people. So he decided to reduce the dose because um, we didn't want the side effects. We wanted 100% But, but that wasn't side effects from stopping, uh, Steve. Those were no, side no, no, effects. No, 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 no. This is, this is nausea from, the, from right. the drug. So we reduced it. It's now 50 milligrams twice a day. And the FDA limit is 300 milligrams a day. So you're talking one third of the dose that you would use for OCD and you're only using it for 14 days. And so because it's only being used for, for a small amount of time and it's at one third of the normal uh, dose that they would give you, right? It's a very modest dose. And so there are very few side effects. No, none of the 77 people in, uh, who took the fluvoxamine uh, at the racetrack None of them reported any side effects whatsoever from the drug. So that was our goal was to, to make sure the side effects are low, but we still had hundred percent effect size when it's given early. So it's only 50 milligrams twice a day. You can stop it uh, when you're done at 14 days, you don't have to taper it off. Sounds Wonderful. Good. Glad to know All that. Right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Now, Jess, we got a notice, something to tell you that's important here. Uh, first of all, if, if we didn't get to your question, Come back next week. We'll be here Wednesday night. We do this. We try to get more in um, and we do our best. 7 p.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific, everything in between. And well, I don't know what it is in Europe, but you know, at any rate. Meanwhile, the special event that's coming up this Sunday, uh, we have a slide, I think, here. You want to know about the first international ivermectin for COVID-19 summit. Uh, Some of you may want to tune in to hear world experts give the latest evidence that's pouring in from parts of Asia and Africa and the Americas. Uh, And uh, they're going to talk about 
how the drug is keeping people healthy. And they're going to also talk about what's happening in places where the drug is being denied to patients. So the summit is free. You just have to click on, there is a place to register there at the link so that you can uh, get the webinar, you know, uh, link so that you can join in on Sunday. And of course, we also want you to go to our website, flccc.net. There's all kinds of information there. Enjoy, share our videos of patients that have had experiences with our protocols, doctors who can tell you how they work and uh, share them, share the statement on the who and disinformation that came out last week, Dr. Corey's statement. Um, and I'm sure we will have Steve's statement in around that you'll be able to link to if it isn't up there already. Uh, we have our peer reviewed scientific review of ivermectin with the American Journal of Therapeutics. Share this good science with everybody that you know. It's important, be part of helping us use the hashtag Ivermectin works and putting patients first. And that's it. We thank you. We thank you all for joining us. We'll stay well, be well, and we'll see you here next week. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Great. <laughs>